Welcome to Dialogue Central. And here with me we have Maya Bridgman from Year 11, Aria, Sam, and Karma. Today we're discussing AI with our guest speaker, Maya. Maya, tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, I'm currently, I've just finished Year 11 going into Year 12, and I'm taking Computer Science A-Level. I also finished my GCSE. Um, I, I specify in a few languages, so I do Python, HTML, JavaScript, C++, and I've currently started to get really into pandas with Python with machine learning. So artificial intelligence and machine learning is my interest. Okay, great. So first, we're going to talk about how artificial intelligence has progressed in analyzing language. Well, um, artificial intelligence really started in the 1960s, more or less. Um, and that was the first time that a chatbot was used, uh, which actually was a rudimentary um, psychotherapist. So the user would say something and then the chatbot, it, it was very simple, very rudimentary, but it would spit back an answer um, depending on the input, which is what you'd expect out of a chatbot. And it didn't have any type of neural network processing. It didn't analyze the sentiments of the language. Um, it just really gave an answer. It's like something that a year nine could code. Uh, but since then, we've developed parsing in artificial intelligence. And so parsing can analyze the root of a, of a word and then use that in comparison with other words and phrases in the sentence. And uh, from that, there's a bunch of other things that it can do now, from sentiment analysis to um, to analyzing the root of a word, and then that allows you to um, to summarize a body of text or to give a synopsis and a bunch of other analysis. So it's really progressed since then. Wow, that's very interesting. So would you say that uh, artificial intelligence in analyzing language has progressed since then? And if so, sort of how would it have been progressed in different uh, networks and different systems? So definitely it's progressed. Uh, there's been major breakthroughs since the 1960s. Um, you know, Google Translate, they use a very complicated neural network now, a huge development from the first chatbots. And uh, I mean, artificial intelligence is now used in a variety of situations from self-driving cars to, art, to translation. Uh, they're even actually working, a few different groups of researchers are working on real um, live translation from an earpiece using neural networks. So there's a bunch of different applications that could go on forever. Wow, that's great. Um, so so I'm, I'm guessing you've heard of the, the GPT-3 uh, language model, right? What are your thoughts on, on, on how, how that could be used to improve our, our lives generally? Uh, you might just want to give the listeners a bit of a summary on GPT-3. So GPT-3 is an auto-regressive language model that uses deep learning to produce uh, human-like text. Uh, it was used in The Guardian to create an article about how AI is not dangerous to humans. Uh, and, and basically, it's, it's based at one of the most powerful uh, artificial intelligence uh, sort of systems ever been. Uh, created. Right, of course. So uh, a similar model to GPT-3, which also analyzes uh, language, is actually used to analyze Shakespeare and a bunch of other um, very famous writers' works, um, pretty old writers' works, and then replicate that in poems and scriptures. 
So they can do a lot from AI uh, is currently being developed to take them out of its own, right? To take its own approach to sounding more human. And so with translation, that's one of the hardest parts of translation. Um, it's not translating based on a body of text because that can be way too literal. Like if you go into an Arabic class and you use Google Translate, oftentimes it won't make sense because you're not getting the phrasing right or you're not getting the word, the meaning behind the words right. Um, so the great thing with GPT-3 is that it poses uh, developments in analyzing the sentiment between behind language. And then you can use that to analyze dialects uh, because a bunch of languages have their own different dialects and those all differ and currently can't be translated. It's only the main languages that can be translated. And also I think one thing that's very interesting, I think you mentioned before, was the history of chatbox. And for example, the first chatbox program was by a Stanford professor. And basically, I think what it was, was he discovered it in 1966 as a sort of use to stimulate conversation and also integrating AI since it was relatively new at the time. So uh, what, what would you say are your thoughts on that and how it sort of progressed since then? So uh, yeah, exactly. That was what I was talking about with the psychotherapist. Um, and in that case, so back then, the, the therapist was very basic, um, as I said before. So since then, there's other, so if you go on a website, uh, if, it's a, if it's a progressive website, or uh, usually a tech support website, like Apple, say, there's a chat bot there that pops up. And that, um, that's been based off of that old model. So it's, it's progressed massively since that very basic chatbot. Um, but it provides information, basic information. You ask it questions and it sounds friendly. Uh, it's very processed and it doesn't have a mind of its own. It's just taking in simple input and giving you an output. And oftentimes, if it doesn't understand the user input, it can just direct you to a human worker because it doesn't have that level of analysis. So there's still a long ways to go. Um, but they are making comebacks in websites. And those chatbots are very useful, actually, because from my research, um, they're helping companies in analyzing client behavior. So how a client behaves on their website and how that affects which products they buy, how much they buy, and that can help with um, their whole market analysis and their target, projecting their targets and everything. Wow, that, that's very cool. So uh, on to another topic, so of AI and gaming, would you say, like you said with the chatbox, I think that chatbox that chatboxes are used relatively a lot in AI in gaming. For example, uh, one example of how AI is used in gaming is to overall enhance the player's experience. For example, there's lots of uh, premeditated responses which are coded based on what movement you do or what uh, option you choose. And because there's such a wide range of options you can choose, let's say there's 20 options, I think there's that would be um, 10 to the power of 18 or something, how many different paths you can choose. So would you say that AI has a, has a significant role in gaming and sort of what its future would be in there? Yeah, definitely. So not just gaming, right? Because gaming is a really broad topic uh, in a bunch of different disciplines. In VR, AI is taking a stand. Uh, there's a bunch of games um, like es escape room games that are being developed or have been developed and are getting better and more immersive as technology improves. So uh, these escape room games, they use AI because the user can do so many different things. It's not just a simple yes or no binary input. Um, they can touch anything in the VR environment or they can pull anything. And then not everything can be hard coded, right? So the system has to respond in whatever way it thinks best. Um, and that's, that's been really useful in gaming and not just in VR and in just normal gaming as well. 
um, and on top of VR. Uh, so AI, AI is being used um, just in gaming generally, but there's definitely a long way to go because if you think about it, if you if you play a game, right, usually only a sec it only accepts a few inputs. Um, it can't handle everything. So the neural networks aren't really being implemented to their full capacity in gaming. Um, and if, if you do an input that's not entirely expected, usually the game just responds in a certain way, which is hard coded into it. So there's a lot of there's a lot of possibilities that haven't been explored yet. Yeah. So I think it's very interesting that you mentioned the input aspect as since virtually all games today, they only take in a set amount of inputs. You have a controller or a keyboard and those is and that is everything that's that's programmed. So so how do you think in a non VR state, how do you think that an AI could be used to generate input since if you're not in VR your inputs are are limited. Like, Definitely, yeah. So you mean in normal gaming? Yes. Yeah. So if you think about it, um, so you can you can use a mouse or a controller, right? Uh, but that's not the only type of gaming that you can do. There's F1 replicating gaming, you know, with the handheld uh, steering wheel, which actually has people have used that to race against real F1 drivers uh, on live TV, which is fascinating. But that requires the use of AI, right, to generate the road ahead, because if you're if you're playing a racing game, then you don't just drive in one straight line. You can crash, you can go whatever way. Um, someone can run into you and then the AI has to, if AI is implemented, usually this stuff is hard coded. So it's not as immersive, but AI can make it a much more fun experience. And that can be very appealing to customers. So a lot of gaming companies are looking into that. But it's going beyond the closed-minded approach if you have a controller or like the closed-minded approach of 1900s games being just just a few uh, like jumping one way or the other or moving left and right so you had said you'd spoken about um how in vr they give you that sense of touch and feeling as well mm -hmm. in those escape room games what are your thoughts on the progression from how ai has come from the chat box uh function to giving a very realistic life feel um touch sense yeah so ai started out as what we've been talking about is the difference in inputs, right? So that's really where AI has progressed, uh, not only in taking in different inputs, but in processing the different inputs. So when AI started out, it could only take in a few very basic uh, worded commands, and then it only had a few ways to deal with those commands. But since then, um, the amount of inputs, not just in gaming, but in other disciplines as well, has really improved. So. Uh, for example, you know, you have deep faking that's done by AI. You take in a video feed. Um, AI can process and compare video feeds as well, like live video feeds. Um, it, it can take anything from media, like a controller, any type of input, really. Even um, there are a few there are a few scenarios where AI is being developed real life. So it's not just you're holding onto a controller in VR, but you're moving around a room, and then the room reacts to you differently. Uh, like a screen around the room so it's much more immersive that way um and then the way processing with uh, the way processing the input has also developed greatly um with self-driving cars you don't know which way you can turn you can turn the steering wheel one way or the other um but ai has to deal with say um the crashing the crashing mechanisms 
uh, in a Tesla, the AI senses how far a car is away from you. And that's not hard coded into it. It senses it uh, based on the senses and it takes in a bunch of different inputs at the same time. It takes in how fast you're going, where the car is around you, uh, the speed at which it's traveling to you. So it's, it's uh, truly fascinating how AI can take in all those different inputs and create one output, which is beneficial. Oh, that's great. So I think another key point of interest is, I think that's a bit more recent in AI, is machine translation. I think that uh, up until the 2010s, I think 2012 or 2013, the uh, industry for machine translation and sort of translating services, I think has reached about 70 to $60 billion. And it's, um, actually no, it's not right now, it's estimated to reach 60 to $70 billion worth in the industry. And I think that since it's such a simple, in seemingly simple uh, machine to sort of just translate a language, how does it become such a large industry and how would it be used? So you would think that translation is a pretty niche topic because it's only used between languages. Um, and there are a bunch of different um, websites that allow you to translate. There's Google Translate, there's Spanish Dict. There's, for, for every language, there's a ton of websites out there. Uh, but it's not about really the accessibility to translation because a lot of these are based on the same principles. So you take a word, you translate that word, and then you do the same for everything else. That's mainly how Google Translate works. And only in 2016, they recently brought in a neural network um, to help compare the words to each other and make the phrasing a little better. But still, Google Translate isn't completely accurate. Um, so language and translation, the reason why that's become such a huge industry is because of globalization, obviously. Um, a lot of companies, they expand globally and then they have to deal with um, paperwork, which is in a different language or another, com another company that they're interacting with um, in, in a different continent. And clients often are from different continents. You have to translate websites. There's a bunch of different implications. Um, and on top of that, it's not only on the corporate level, but client based. A lot of people travel and they want that experience. Uh, they don't just want a physical book you can buy with basic phrases in the other language, right? Um, so real, real time translation is being developed with the earpiece that I mentioned. Um, and not only that, there's now an app, I can't remember the name, but you just speak into it and then it, it can translate to any language and then it, and then it um, displays that language. So it's not completely seamless, but it's a, a step towards easier communication. And translation, it just has so many, so many different aspects. It can break down cultural barriers. Um, it can help, and, and breaking down cultural barriers can be, ha, can have a huge implication um, in some third world countries because of the dangers that these barriers pose. Um, but because the industry is growing to such a huge level, I'd say it's mainly on the corporate level. Yeah, and that's very interesting because, like how you mentioned, it can break cultural barriers. I think that, that I completely agree, but I think that also someone on the opposing team could also argue how with uh, the interest in globalization and increase of, for example, cultural erosion, it could also sort of, someone could see as, with Google Translate, I think a lot of, for example, language, foreign language teachers would see as these neural uh, translating networks to be very, for the lazy children, like for people who just don't want to actually put in the work to um, learn a language. So what are your thoughts on that and would it sort of be for the better if everyone could just learn every language without actually learning the culture and putting in the work. So that's interesting. Um, you, some might argue that if you don't take the time to learn the language, you're being lazy. 
Um, but realistically, very few people can have the time or the capacity to learn an entirely new language. Some people are just vacationing and they want to make their way around the country while they're there for a short, for a short time period. Um, and regardless of what the client of what the client thinks, people are all about convenience, right? So it's much more convenient for live translation than to have to put in work to that. And um, corporate companies are bound to take advantage of that as they are already. Um, and interesting, you said that actually. AI um, is currently being developed uh, to form a universal language. So it's it's questionable whether there are going to be as many languages in the future. And language analysts say that the amount of languages will die down, especially, sadly, dialects and um, languages spoken in more remote regions where the populations are lessening. Um, so AI can be used to reconstruct those languages and keep them alive. Uh, but at this point, there's, there's only so many languages that the wider client base, uh, usually in the Western regions, um, can want to speak, like French, Spanish, there are Romance languages. Um, and, and to the universal language I was talking about, that is a possibility uh, where there's a language simple enough for anyone to learn it in a matter of weeks or days um, because it, it's just, it has the simplest rules, very little exceptions. And that could be a great step forward instead of having to take these steps to, to learn languages or translate. Yeah, I completely agree. So I think the fact that AI is trying to produce a language for everyone is very interesting because that has a bunch of problems that come with it. So first of all, just homogenization, loss of culture, all of that. But for the actual creation of the language, the the AI needs a lot of a lot of data about the world in order to in order to keep its cult in order to keep the the roots of or segments at least of every language, which I think that's what it's trying to do. And in order to do that, it needs it needs to really understand every culture on a deeper deeper level. So do you think that AI will be able to understand anything with just data alone? Or do you think AI has an upper limit for level of understanding? So uh, definitely, I think to be careful um, thinking that AI has an upper limit because it's only really the start of AI. Um, since the 1960s, it hasn't been very long, to be honest. Uh, especially if you think about like literature that's been around for hundreds and thousands of years, and we still haven't seen the limits of literature. So uh, with technology, it's definitely on an upward growth, um, even more so with machine learning. And so uh, what you said is interesting, definitely, homogenization. Um, and with globalization and westernization, that's a real problem. Uh, because even though cultures are spreading around the world, some of the smaller cultures where the people don't travel, those are dying out. Um, so AI is being used in some disciplines to help preserve those languages. There are a few research teams at um, Stanford and Oxford that are developing programs that uh, you speak with elder, elders in a tribe or uh, people in regions where the populations are being accustomed to other languages and then you basically record the language so that it's preserved, but it's not spoken by the younger generations who prefer a more widely spoken language. Um, and that's a real issue. But with a universal language, the reason why that could be beneficial is it wouldn't, it wouldn't completely wipe out the other cultures, right? Because cultures 
languages are very deeply rooted in culture, um, like with dances and, and food, uh, that all amounts to someone's culture. So universal language should be purely out of convenience. And this is actually something that had already taken flight um, in the 1890s, I think. There was Esperanto, which was a, a language invented by a Polish man, and it was very successful. It was even, uh, so it was a universal language, extremely easy to learn in a few days. Um, all, the, all the grammar rules had no exceptions. The verbs have very easy conjugations. And uh, it was so easy, actually, um, that it spread across Europe and there were huge, and it was taught in universities. It was, uh, it was really huge. And even the, Na the League of Nations, um, they were going to adopt it as a language, as an official language. Uh, but then World War II happens and Hitler saw it as a language of the spies because it was so universal. He thought, because he couldn't understand it, um, that those speaking Esperanto were plotting against the Nazis. So he wiped out most of the speakers and took out the Polish man. Um, Stalin, actually, he was a fan of Esperanto as well. Uh, it, it's really fascinating how like all the world leaders were involved with this, but Stalin was a fan of Esperanto. And then when he saw that Hitler um, went against it, he didn't want to um, discourage him. So he also turned against Esperanto and it died out from there. So you can get it on Duolingo. Um, it's still very, it's not widely available, but it's very much there. And it, it really almost, it almost had a huge impact. And the reason why universal language would be so beneficial is because it would, if everyone were to learn it, it would be a huge feat. And that would eliminate, people could still hold on to their cultures within their regions, but it would really help globalization. Because if you learned it and then someone in another country learned it, you could communicate seamlessly um, without things getting lost in translation. Um, businesses would be able to globalize much more easily and it would be more, it would be out of convenience. So cultures are like unlikely to be affected by it. I think that's very interesting. For example, also I'm just translating some words to test out Esperanto now. I do agree that if, for example, I think that it's very common for stu students and children all around the world to be taught a simple language like for example, if you're in the UAE, Arabic, or most commonly Spanish and, uh, Spanish and French, that I think that if you know the basics of those languages, then it can definitely help with Esperanto. For example, um, Hello World, I think, is a saluto bondo, and Dialogue Central is Centro Dialogo. So I just think that's very interesting. Yeah, so I was just thinking, in terms of languages, how would it sort of relate and what would its future be in AI? And more specifically, if we were to, let's say, if everyone was to suddenly use Esperanto, what impact would it have on, for example, the uh, neural translation industry? And like, would that completely crumble or would they make a comeback in some other way? That's interesting. Um, so if Esperanto were to come back, it has been attempted to be brought back by a small group of, of university students, but sadly they haven't had much luck um, because it's, it's a very foreign concept to most people. Um, so if there were to be a new universal language, it would likely be developed by, by an AI because it's unlikely that another language simpler than Esperanto is possible to be developed. Um, and not many people are looking into that right now. So in the future, um, if Esperanto were to come back or another universal language were to come around, then that, that would just honestly help people uh, with cultural differences. 
as an example, um, in, in South Africa, there was a study done and in a, it was a small village outside of um, one of the major cities. There were, so the majority of children there, there's only one hospital and uh, all the staff at the hospital spoke the main, uh, spoke, there's a bunch of different languages spoken in South Africa, right? So the, all the staff at the hospital spoke one language and all the children and adults spoke another language. And so all the children and all the patients uh, were unable and still are unable to get proper treatment from, because a lot of things are lost in translation or not understood. Um, and so having a universal language, if it managed to infiltrate those smaller levels, uh, not just on the grander scale of the Western countries, um, that could really help people interacting and it wouldn't mean a loss of culture. Do you, do you think that if, if an AI were to create a universal language and dialects were made out of that language, uh, eventually, do you think that eventually over time those dialects could, could, could evolve into, into entirely new languages and it would basically, it, it, everywhere, we would all be back to square one and we'd have to create another universal language and, you know, the, the cycle repeats, uh, what, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, so um, the cycle has been going on for quite a while, right, since the start of proper communication between humans. Um, and if AI were to create a universal language, um, it, it would be based off of most likely a romantic language like Spanish or French or Italian, because those are the easiest to learn. Um, and so if that were to happen, really the whole point of a universal language, if it were accepted, which is still yet to be determined, there haven't been any studies done and not much research done into this. Um, so that it, it's, it's uncertain whether it would be generally accepted by uh, the general public. But if it were to be, um, people might make dialogues. It's really uncharted territory here because a universal language Esperanto was the best and the, the simplest language um, and the best bat at a universal language. And that was still a, over a century ago. Um, so if one were to take off, it's really hard to say whether dialogues, whether dialects would be uh, made off of that because it would be a language of convenience, right? So everyone would speak that language purely to communicate. Um, but if people change that for whatever reasons, um, definitely dialects could be made. But I don't think the, the ancient languages called proto-languages, like those have died out, right? So it's really uncertain whether the current languages will die out like those proto-languages. Um, but those are also mainly written, not spoken. And so with the amount of media from all the languages that are currently, all the more popular languages that are currently um, in the world right now, which are spoken, they're used in songs, there's a lot of written literature on it. Um, I'm, I think it's unlikely that those will, will stop being used or that those will die out because there's so much to record them by. With the languages that have died out, usually they're spoken and um, those who speak them, just, just their population dwindles um, or they're just written from ancient civilizations and those are indecipherable. And that's the main reason why. Well, it's amazing. I do think that AI has a great future in languages, but I do think that very key concept of AI in our modern society is, I think, in a more pressing and um, a more recent issue, is, well, not an issue, but a more recent topic, is artificial intelligence in space. I think that it is quite a broad topic since there's so many different 
kinds of uh, branches you can go off into. But I think that very interesting one was how I think in December 2019, there was a space robot named Simon with a C who was launched and it's a bit like uh, the space robots from the movie Star Trek, but it is used to improve efficiency on the, on the um, ISS, uh, help astronauts in any other daily activities or testing. And as well as that, it also serves as a extra SOS system if somehow all the other um, safety systems fail or just for to improve efficiency on the plane. So what are your thoughts on that and sort of how could AI be branched out further into robotics in space? Okay, sure. Um, so robotics in space is a prevalent topic, definitely. And the robots that are have currently been deployed onto other planets or um, in satellites. Oh, that's that's really cute. <laughs> so the robots that have been deployed are mainly for scientific purposes, right? They're not for um, to support the astronauts up there. They're not for communication. Really, that's done just by um, simple satellite communication. Uh, they're just to collect samples, take them back, and take videos. It's a very basic purpose. And up until now, there hasn't been much need for them to have a mind of their own. Um, but, but as space exploration develops, AI could take a really great role if we're going to inhabit another planet. Because then, or, or even in, in driving, um, well, not driving, but acting as an astronaut in that case. Um, in, in launching a rocket. So it's, it's really a stretch from here to think that a robot, um, uh, that an AI could completely launch a rocket successfully. Um, but it's possible considering the rate at which the industry is accelerating. And a lot of money and a lot of corporate businesses have focused all their time and energy. Um, a lot of money has been poured into the space, into the space um, industry right now. So it's completely possible that that could take root as we've seen with Simon. Um, and in which case, um, Simon was a test, right, to see if this is feasible. And it's really about um, the demands for an AI in space. So it, it could be possible that um, an AI in space could take the role of um, the more menial tasks that an astronaut has to perform, like doing simple repairs. And that could be really beneficial because it reduces the risk of loss of life. Um, but in terms of, uh, I, I don't think it's very risky. Uh, a lot of people seem to think that AI will someday take over the world or that an AI robot being put into space is detrimental to society and it'll, like, it'll uh, have a negative impact on the human race one day. But really, um, the scientists that are working on these AI neural networks and the robots, they're very careful about their work. Uh, they usually have safeguards in place. And if a robot were to be properly developed uh, by one of the major companies, most likely less than a startup, uh, because a lot of effort and resources is needed for such a feat, um, then that would be a great development. And definitely it would help um, because an astronaut has such a tough job then even taking a few of those tasks will be greatly beneficial. Um, so in February of this year, uh, NASA landed the Perseverance rover onto Mars, and they're using that to get brought from Mars to Earth by 2030. And so what is your opinion on how they're using AI to laser the rocks and then burn them and bring them back and bring them onto Earth? Right, so uh, the AI that's being used in Perseverance, uh, it's not 
it's not uh, very developed and complicated. It's not very intricate, like a neural network or like natural language processing because of all the intricacies of language, it's just not there. It's um, really just deciding where to cut. And that's mainly aided by a human connected to the robot, like the whole team that was with Perseverance when it launched. Um, so in terms of collecting samples for scientific purposes, um, there's only so many factors that can be taken into place, right? You want a proper sample from um, like an undisturbed area. And so the AI is able to properly perform that. Uh, even if it's driven by humans, maybe one day it'll be able to go by itself and pick up samples. Uh, but right now it's, it's on the verge of that development, uh, but humans still have to aid it in selecting where the best, um, where the best place to get the resources are from. And so I don't think because Perseverance is the first rover on Mars um, to, to get samples and the humans um, on the team aren't, aren't completely ready to take the risk of having a, an autonomous robot on there. Uh, because they do want to have a semblance of control over this first mission because it's a major breakthrough in, in space exploration. And so I think as, um, as NASA or any other space company gets more comfortable with the idea of, um, of letting go a bit of the robots, then as they let go and develop the AI approach to and integrate it more into the robots and make it less, um, less human-based, then that would make it much easier for the teams to focus their uh, efforts elsewhere. And so it could really help them to expand their reach. And uh, one thing about the AI on, AI on Perseverance, as you said, it doesn't make a lot of complex decisions, right? But one thing that it needs to do is to be able to execute a command. And when there are hurdles, it needs to be able to do it since Although there's a human team behind Perseverance at all times, it takes over three minutes for for the signal to reach to, for the signal to reach the rover in Mars. So, if a place of rock is selected and it needs to cut that rock, it needs to be able to perform three minutes without human aid. And I think that's where a lot of the AI has been put, and it it, it has been successful in that department performing instructions without human aid for a certain amount of time. Yeah, I completely agree. And in that case, um, Perseverance has taken its own approach um, where, but it's really only a straightforward task, like you said. It's not um, making complex decisions by itself and even the decisions that it does make without the human, without the period of human contact, those are influenced by the human decisions by the team. And so at this point, um, the rover is really still kept on a tight leash. Uh, it's not. It's not making its decisions for. It's not making its decisions for itself yet, and so that um, it, it's really not as advanced as it could be. But it is the first real rover to take samples off of Mars, and so it's understandable that the NASA team doesn't want to take um, those risks just yet. Wow, that's very interesting, and also I'd say that. In terms of how AI is used, you've given very uh, descriptive, you explained to us how it's used, but also what are some examples? Because I do know for a fact that AI in sort of speaks exploration in general is used in mainly navigation systems for the shuttle and used in, for example, robots, as we mentioned before. And, and it was even used with a special system. I think it was called 
uh, chirp uh, that was used to take the first image of a black hole. But what would you say is any sort of recent AI steps forward that's being used in space exploration or any sort of future designs that are currently being manufactured? Uh, yeah, so it's interesting that you say AI is used in um, taking pictures of, of space. That's been a very recent development because before um, the, the telescopes that were used, although they were um, very expensive and had a great magnification power, it's really, AI has really helped in locating the tiny, um, the, the small discrepancies in, in the image that's produced by that telescope. And that's been useful because there's only so much that the human eye can see. Even if you have a, a really powerful telescope, um, then a human team can only spot so many things to look at there. And AI can point out even the smallest difference, which can make the greatest difference uh, if it leads to a great space discovery. And um, I, I don't think that I can speak um, very, very well on the recent developments of AI in space because there's just been so many recently. Um, and you can't say that there's really been many recent developments because all these implications and um, uses of AI and machine learning uh, in space exploration have been pretty recent. So all that we've been talking about uh, with Simon and with um, Perseverance and taking images of space, those have all been within the past few years. Um, and that and the rate at which AI is being implemented is picking up, as we've seen. Um, from You can even tell by this year, teams have been putting more and more energy and effort into developing these approaches. Well, thank you. So uh, one thing that you also remember you mentioned from your introduction is that you do you, you use a lot, quite a lot of coding in your languages. So what languages are you currently learning or have you learned in coding? Uh, so I've learned HTML, C++, and JavaScript, um, and I've and Swift as well. I forgot to mention that uh, Swift UI, even though it's it's pretty similar. Uh, but my main language is Python, and so if we're talking about um, the applications with regards to machine learning, then uh, if any listeners want to get involved um, in even learning the basics of AI, it's pretty simple, honestly. It takes uh, a bit of effort to get your head around the basics, uh, but once you get the hang of it, it's not too difficult. So you can use Pandas as a good way to start out with Python. Um, and Pandas, you can, you can use data visualization as a very simple and uh, basic approach to AI. And then from there, you can use regression models or um, you can display on a dashboard graphs with data frames. Um, it just gets more complicated from there. And you can use that with Jupyter Notebook. Um, if, yeah, Pandas, Python with Jupyter Notebook is the best place to start, I'd say. And can you just explain more what Jupyter's Notebook is? Uh, so Jupyter Notebook is kind of like um, another environment for you to code in. So it's like REPL, uh, which is the coding website, or Terminal. Um, it's just there as an environment uh, that you save your code in and implement your, your code in. So um, you can use pandas. Um, you can use pandas pretty easily there. I'd say it's the best place and the easiest to get a hold of. Yeah, great. So uh, I was just searching up and I found out that although NASA uses almost every coding language in existence because of different tests and 
and programs. They most primarily use uh, Python and C++ in their robotics and their main uh, network. Although it's very complex, it's still the same languages that we would be learning in computer science. So would you recommend any sort of projects or ideas that uh, new listeners would, could sort of try to on robotics or even AI? So Python and C++ have been warring uh, to the most used languages for a while now. C++ was used um, and still is used by most companies, but Python is, um, is pulling ahead now, especially uh, with NASA. So I'd say Python is a bit easier to learn than C++. And if you do take computer science, GCSC or A-level, you'll learn how to use Python. Uh, and it's pretty simple to just look up tutorials. Um, you can take a course on Coursera or Udemy, and that's a really great place to start for the basics. Uh, or you can just look up, there's a bunch of tutorials on YouTube or on just general websites. I'm sure you can find a bunch out there. Um, so you'd say that C++ and Python were used quite a lot, especially Python with space exploration. Um, so another popular language that I've heard of is Java. And um, where is Java used? So you said C++ is used um, by corporate um, companies. Python is used by NASA and space exploration. Where would Java? Right, so um, like Karma was saying, with NASA and other space exploration companies, they do use an array of languages because of the different disciplines that are taken into account uh, when they're coding either their AI or uh, they have so many systems. They have checking systems, testing systems. Um, they have to run through models to see if uh, a certain rocket will launch properly. Um, and so Java, Java is not as popular as Python and C++ uh, because it's, it just doesn't have as many um, widespread applications. And so it's not as, uh, it's not too difficult to learn, honestly. I like, I learned JavaScript, which is pretty similar to Java. Um, but I'd say Java is a good, it's a good language to know and it's looked favorably upon by companies. Uh, it's used um, I, I can't say all the applications of every language, then I'll be here forever. Uh, but it's it's used for more or less the same thing as Python. It's just that Python is a bit more uh, reliable. And so that's why it's used by most corporate co companies. So speaking of just programming and development, what do you think about the development process of AI? You know, there's some AIs are developed by like people. So how would people go about creating their own AI? Okay, right. So there's a bunch of different approaches to creating an AI. Of course, there's AI is a very broad topic. So there's so many different subtopics under it. You can have natural language processing, uh, neural networks, computational linguistics, uh, the list just goes on. So if you're taking one of the simpler approaches, say like models, uh, using AI, you can use regression models. So either linear, binary, uh, there's a bunch of other regression models. And that, I'll, I'll just explain that one because it's probably the simplest and easiest to explain um, on, on a podcast. But in that case, it's not very widely seen as um, by beginners as implementing AI, but it really does take great use. And it's a great example of, um, of machine learning. So binary or linear regression models, they take in a certain set of data inputs, um, which are in a, stored in a data frame. And 
um, using those, it charts a graph and then you can train. So you basically develop um, a formula that accounts for all the different data points on a graph. And then uh, from that, you then train that model to make it as accurate as possible for that data set. Um, so you have to, it, it's kind of difficult to explain, but you have to compare each value to the other on both axes of the graph and um, see where they lie on the graph. So each point where it lies, it's not given an X and a Y value, it's just given one value for where it lies. And then from that, you can train a model to be as accurate to that graph as possible. And you use a different set of data um, from the same experiment or under the, with the same constraints and factors. And you use that to test the model. Um, and then from that, you can project an outcome. So that's used a lot in companies for marketing, um, for their market projections, for customer projections, and all that. So another more advanced method is neural, neural networking. And there's, so I am not experienced at all in this, but a neural, a neural network is something that connects various inputs for the AI to the various outcomes at the end. And it's sort of, it's supposed to be similar to a brain, but our brains are far too complex to understand. Exactly. But the way it does that it connects all of the different stimuli, makes that go through a process, and then that ends up with with a final output yeah. or a series of mm -hmm. outputs. Yeah, so uh, that's completely right. A neural network is what I just told you about a, a model. Uh, a regression model is just one type of model. Uh, a neural network is basically that on a much grander scale um, and several times over. So in, within a neural network, uh, you have a bunch of models working together to produce an output from a series of inputs. And it doesn't, it's not just one input like old um, arcade games, uh, but it can be a bunch of different stimuli, like you said. And like we discussed previously with VR, um, there's a bunch of different factors that go into the environment and a bunch of different ways the user can act. And so the neural network has to take all that into account and produce a singular output. And from that, um, you, you basically have to train a model uh, of a neural network um, with a certain set of data and you have to tweak it so that it, it performs in the way that you want it to. And then from that, you have to test it to make it as accurate as possible. And that's a very simplified version of the process. It's a very, very complicated process. Uh, but after that, you'll if, if you do that whole thing correctly, then you'll end up with a neural network. Wow, that's great. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. So now I think that the listeners might want to get a bit, they might want to get to know a bit more about you. So would uh, so since you said you have you know been learning languages, encoding, and everything, have you uh, made any major projects? Are you work? Are are you developing anything major right now in sort of terms of coding or AI or software development? Yeah. So I've done quite a few projects, um, a lot for my computer science GCSE. Uh, two of the bigger projects that I've done uh, that the listeners might want to hear about. Last summer, I actually coded an app using Swift uh, for iOS for the Beirut explosion that happened in Lebanon. And it helped to reunite um, lost family members uh, who were impacted by the explosion with their families. And um, that uh, it was a great learning experience for me because it had that humanitarian approach uh, and it did have an impact on the world around you which was different to anything that I had coded before. Um, and currently with regards to AI, um, so 
I'm, I'm using pandas, as I said before. And uh, right now I'm making a regression model for COVID data throughout, the, throughout um, all the countries listed on a data frame. Um, it's basically all the major countries uh, that are listed on this data frame online. And I'm making a, a dashboard um, just using AI uh, to display graphs and statistical information of all COVID cases um, and the factors that affect those. So from that, you can see what really has gone into making the most COVID cases and how that impacts the number of people who have confirmed cases, who, uh, who have died, who have recovered successfully. And there are a bunch of different things that go into that, like population, education, population density, um, living and healthcare accessibility, uh, a bunch of different things. And uh, one project that I'm most excited to be working on it uses natural language processing. And I'm working with um, this company from uh, based in California, uh, who they do have an AI um, learning introductory camp program. And they're um, accepting 10,000 scholarship students in the next few years. And from that, uh, all applicants have to put in a set of essays. And then usually you have an admissions team that goes through every one of those essays. and says whether you've gotten one of those 10,000 spots. And so there'll be many people competing for these spots. And so I've been tasked, I've been tasked basically with um, creating a, a program that can analyze each of these essays and then determine a score for each user, uh, for each applicant. And then from that, the company will be able to determine who gets their scholarships. Wow. And those are only very simple in the AI world. It's not like these are complicated projects uh, for most, but they're really interesting. Yeah, I agree. AI is almost impossibly is a vast. Yeah, vast and mm -hmm. to understand to wrap your head around. But I think the fact that you know you're doing this and when did you start sort of coding these projects? So I only really started AI recently. Um, the whole reason I got into AI, uh, I was really interested in linguistics. So when I first did, um, I, I did my classical Greek GCSE at this, um, in November of this year. So that sparked my interest in AI because that was um, used in my HPQ project, uh, the higher project qualification. And so I did that on the future impacts of artificial intelligence with languages and used my, uh, what I learned from my Greek GCSE, all the grammar rules and all that with my HPQ. And um, from there, uh, I, I've had an interest in AI and definitely with coding since I was at least eight, you know, I've been coding since then. Uh, but AI is a very complicated concept to grasp. And so I've only gotten the hang of it this past year, maybe a bit of year 10 as well. And so these projects, I've only started them within the past year, um, maybe from the end of year 10 till now. Wow. Nice. Yeah. And also, um, and I think another thing that I remember you mentioning was how you were studying an artificial intelligence club here at DC. So would you mind elaborating on that? Uh, you know, who was open to it and maybe what would we expect if we joined the club? Yeah, so I'm just launching it uh, now at the end of this academic year and I'm really starting it next year. Um, and so the artificial intelligence club is open to all members who want to join, but it's targeted specifically at years seven to 11. Uh, just because A-level students have a lot more on their plates. Uh, but the club is is based on providing accessibility to 
uh, to AI because to most, I'm sure to most of the listeners listening, um, it seems like a very daunting, uh, complicated topic to breach. And it, it was that for me until I got, until I got into it. And um, there's this program online, the Stanford AI for All program, which um, is focused on promoting AI to all students of all backgrounds across the world. And I've become a part of that program to try and spread the reach um, and the knowledge that I've learned and the knowledge that the program has provided uh, with students at DC. So the club is focusing on the ethics behind AI and simple, um, simple projects that can be done online with AI that are really easy, really, really easy to understand. I wish I would have done these when I first started out. And um, it'll just help all members get a much better grasp of the field of AI, what it's like to work in it. Uh, there's guest speakers as well to have um, from California uh, who work in, business, in corporate businesses with regards to AI, mainly machine learning. And so it's just to give all students a much better um, comprehensive view of the field. Wow, amazing. Okay, well, for closing remarks, uh, to anyone, any listeners who are not completely sold on AI or have any more, I guess, questions or would like to get into the field, would, what would you say to those listeners or uh, those people? So I'd say that coding is um, a really broad topic that anyone can enjoy. It's really difficult to start out uh, with coding if you feel like you're not technically inclined or technologically advanced. Um, and especially if you haven't been exposed to coding early like I was, then it may, it, it is a, it's not difficult to get into the field, but it may seem that way until you start out. And so I really think that computer science, especially machine learning, is, um, will play a huge role in the future, as we've discussed in all, in all aspects, with languages, with space, um, and it's just really um, an experience to get into. Um, which is, you definitely won't regret it if you start out, even with simple projects with AI. It'll definitely have a positive impact on your future and the skills that you can bring to university, to your future corporate jobs, or to anything else. Wow. Well, thank you for joining us, Maya. And listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Dialogue Central with Karma. And our guest speaker, Maya Bridgman. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And see you in the next episode.